I've now started to differentiate between self-love and things that take discipline and things that might be a bit boring and self-soothing, the things that I used to associate with, it makes me feel good or I'm treating mm-hmm. myself. And <laughs> again, because we're, we're so disconnected and we conflate self-soothing with self-love, it makes treating ourselves feel like this really hard thing to tolerate, which is sad and mind-blowing, but such a comment on society, on how the function of, of taking care of ourselves is a exhausting and laborious thing. Welcome back to The Pleasure Ethic. I'm Javier Cortez, joined by my co-host, Elena Letourneau. And today we are talking about embodiment. This is going to be an interesting one and a very important episode, mainly because for Elena's practice, I know, as we've talked about privately, embodiment is one of her pillars of practice. And I think this is going to be an interesting episode for listeners because when they hear the word embodiment, I'm just going to take a guess that a lot might not have a really good understanding of what that might truly be. And uh, really the reason for that is because from an early age within our society, we're not really taught how to be in tuned with ourselves. I like to use this analogy of like a car with how we're taught how to get back in tune with our body from a therapeutic perspective. So you go to a therapist and they tell you, or they ask you, what do you feel in your body? Or where in your body is that coming from? And for people like me who very low literacy of something like embodiment, I go, what the fuck are you talking about? Because that makes zero sense to me. And for me, the it's this analogy of, it's like a therapist comes to you with a step-by-step list on how to drive a car. And that step-by-step list can be as detailed and as accurate as possible on every single little thing you need to do. But if you've never driven a car before, you don't know how to handle a car. You don't know how to navigate the the gas and the brakes, and you're going to crash it at some point. You do not have the literacy for it. And I think that is as we try to, in adulthood, refine embodiment, we're not really taught how to make it make sense. And it doesn't matter the pamphlet or the step-by-step list. You need the reps to really get into back with that. I think what you're speaking to also in that experience of yours in therapy, you know, especially how it made you feel stupid was Mm. because it is presented as this thing that's good, right? Especially in therapy and especially these days, like embodiment is something that we're told that is a good thing and we need to practice. But after a lifetime, of being taught to dissociate from our bodies and control all things related to, but really just be in our heads more than in our bodies being told like now be embodied doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There's a huge gap from like, okay, good idea. Have no practice. How do we do it? And I think the car is a great analogy and it's a great analogy for a lot of things that I do in coaching. One of the reasons I think, you know, experiential coaching is really important you got to try these things. It's like, Mm. it's the same. I mean, it's anything we want to talk about. It's like, you can't read a book on how to write a song and then write a song. You can't read a book on how to play tennis and then go out and be a tennis pro. 
these things all require practice. So how do we get embodied after being taught the opposite for most of our lives? And I mean, that is huge enough to tackle in of itself. But let's let's go back because we don't come out of the womb disassociating from our bodies. Correct. It starts maybe, would you say, once we start to gain some type of verbal skill and communication processes or practices with our parents, when do you think that general age of disassociating starts, if you had to guess? Well, it's probably gradual. (laughs) And I think it's really social too. Like it's definitely, I think, very specific to our current Western culture, right? Where we value the rational and the mental over the emotional over the physical, you know, where we treat the body as something that we're supposed to master, you know, the body's urges and the body's desires and the body's existence is something that we're supposed to master instead of be in relationship with. And we're, and we're missing a lot in that. So I don't know. You asked me when it starts. I don't, I don't really. I think you answered it. One thing that kind of makes it tricky is that we have to have some level of control over our body, right? You yes. you, you can't teach a kid to eh, just, you know, poop and pee whenever you want, bud. It's your body. <laughs> All that it makes sense, but there's still a disconnect where the control goes too far. It oversteps its boundaries in a lot of ways, maybe you would you say outside of relationship yeah. to those things. I think let's touch on a little bit about like how we get taught to dissociate from our bodies, the things that the things that we experience early on that that create that split. And, you know, we were talking about before, you know, as we were getting ready for this, like how we, you know, food is a huge one, right? That so many people have stories of like being forced to stay at the dinner table to finish the meal. And that is that is a direct that is in direct contradiction to teaching someone how to be in tune with their body. It's not about, are you hungry or are you full? It becomes about, you'll do what I say. Yes. And this is the rule. And you're going to show me respect. And there are so many examples like that. That is basically my childhood with my father and right. every aspect of how he raised me. And my quick anecdote is, you know, I was the youngest of three and I was always the last at the dinner table because it just took me forever to eat. And so I had to stay at the dinner table till that last bite before I could leave or get dessert or really do anything, go to the bathroom sometimes. There was this one night we're eating something like pasta and I get to that last bite and I puke everything I ate right back up onto the plate. And when I think about that continual practice of that do as I say, do as I say, do as I say, as it relates to eating... It made eating a very stressful and anxiety-inducing process, which eating shouldn't be. And although there are a lot of people that have a lot of complicated feelings and disorders related to eating, there's also a lot of people where eating is just a very simple human practice and process. It should be, right? I mean, that's the thing, like to be taught, to have that experience, and then as I imagine, that's like still affecting you. You were, you were speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So as an adult now, my, my girlfriend of four years has pointed out that I 
put myself in a fasting state and I am way too comfortable with being hungry. And a lot of that is because when I think about eating, it is something that is incredibly stressful or it's meticulous or it's laborious. And it's like, I just, if I could take a pill and that could give me all the nutritional and caloric value that I need for the day, I would fucking do it. And I love food, but there's, I can't escape from that side of it that is anxiety inducing. So these early experiences taught you to dissociate from one of not only the most, like, I mean, clearly we need, we need to eat to live. Like it is fundamental to being in a body. Yes. And not only that, like it's pleasurable, like food should be nourishing and it should be a, a, a pleasurable experience or at least a neutral one or I don't know. I, I think food is really, I love yeah. food. I think food yeah. is one of like the, yeah. I know. Absolutely. Great but, things about being in a body is we get to eat good food. You know, but, but the funny thing is, so that's like one end of the spectrum where it's like this tyrannical control over your body and its bodily <laughs> functions. But you kind of have an experience with something that is the opposite. Do you want? Yeah, to and you that? know what? It's really interesting too because we've been trying to, to like to to start to introduce the idea of boundaries here too, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you're talking about something that we might say is overboundaried, right? Too controlled, yes. too rigid, and I had the opposite. Yeah, and where I had that was I didn't have a bedtime, and ideally, as we get older. And become more conscious and become, you know, grow into, you know, or start becoming, moving toward adulthood. Like we do have to have some, we get to have control and choice ideally and modeling mm-hmm. good behavior. Like sometimes that's like, go to bed, <laughs> yeah. go to bed. And yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, can we just acknowledge how wild that is? Like that's wild. Okay. Tell me what, what's wild. That you didn't have a bedtime. And I'm not even trying to take it down the road of like shaming your parents, but it's just wild because from my perspective, I never wanted to go to sleep and I've always had sleeping problems. And my parents had the hardest time putting my ass to sleep. So (laughs) me just thinking about if my manic, wild, sugar addict, five-year-old self had no bedtime, I mean, I, I, I would probably be dead by the time I was 20. Right. It's crazy. Um, and sleep is another thing. So, okay. So let's talk about this, right? The, the basics of embodiment, the basics that a body need, body needs food, water, sleep, rest. I mean, we can talk about other things, but let's like, we're talking about two basic things, food yeah, and the sleep. essentials. Yeah. Interestingly, one area of my life that I don't have a lot of problem, a lot of problematic relationship with is food. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have had a prob- problematic relationship with sleep my whole life, and it has really impacted a lot of things, like including my mental health. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, I my parents tried to put me to sleep and still yeah. sleep until this so, day is bad for me as well. Yeah. So with my parenting, it was like this um, you know, skewed idea of empowerment, right? It's like, oh, they'll just know when they need to go to sleep. But like so many things, it's like, no, you know, and uh, a young child doesn't know and needs help. Like what looks like not being tired, maybe mania and actually past tired. Like you'd be like, hey, baby, it's time to go to sleep. I know you're having fun and you don't want to 
you know, put your toys away or whatever, but it's time to go to sleep and starting to, I don't know. There's so many nuances here. I don't want to get in the weeds, but mostly like what I wanted to talk about here was the examples of how we get dissociated sleep and food. And then once we get into school, I think another really good example of how we are taught to dissociate is how like you can't go to the bathroom when you want to. The classic example of not honoring someone's own bodily autonomy is the is the old you gotta hug the grandpa or aunt, you know, instead of being like, do you want to like, how do you feel in your body? Or like, I don't know, there, there's so many ways we could go. It, it's so true. And, and when we talk about embodiment, we can't divorce ourselves from talking about parenting or child rearing mm-hmm. because that that's is where we learn it. Yeah, that's the start of that disassociative process. And for some people like me with my father, it was a tyrannical control. And then for you, you're like free range where. Yeah, no. Yeah. And you're giving the keys to to the car and, you know, figure it out more or less. It might sound good to people who had tyrannical like over boundary things, but it is not. (laughs) It was chaotic and not helpful. What you need within that developmental stage is you need logic. Like you, the, the kids need some form of logic. They need to, yes, there are boundaries and a certain level of control that they need to adhere to. But deeper than that, they need to know why. Because if you mm. don't give them the why, they're eventually going to get to a point in an age of questioning that. And I think stereotypically you you know you have those people who are raised within like such a tight ship and then they do the exact opposite because they see no value in that type of control and they view any type of control as tyrannical when not all control is that thing and it it needs to be a marriage it needs to be a collaboration in an ideal world Mm -hmm. we have caregivers who are embodied and emotionally literate, and they model and teach the young ones the same thing, you know, being able to recognize, have choice, have buy-in. Okay, Pleasure Ethic listeners, so before we continue with the rest of this episode, I just want to take a quick aside to operationally define embodiment using the words of my co-host, Elena Laterno. So this is what Elena sent to me before we recorded this very episode. Embodiment is about slowing down enough to pay attention to what is really going on when most of us are accustomed to reacting to life, pushing through, or performing. We are taught early on to deny or bypass our own embodied knowing, aka boundaries, in many ways. And as Elena and I have already stated, Classic examples are having to hug family members out of obligation, being forced to eat everything on your plate at dinner, or not being able to use the bathroom at school. And the list of examples go on. There are so many other ways we are taught to control rather than respect our body's needs and signals. All right, now back to the episode. You know, it's interesting. I get I get a little bit lost in in comparing our stories because I think mine's 
so unusual. Like <laughs> the boundary, <laughs> to yeah. understatement. Yeah. <laughs> um, the boundarylessness is less common than the overboundaried controlling type, mm-hmm. right? So the pushing through and the performative aspects. That's what we struggle with a lot. And one of the things in that too is like I talk about the locus of control. When I'm teaching embodiment, it's about where is the locus of control? And most of us are struggling with these performative aspects and expectations and the locus of control is external. And I think one of the things about embodiment is it's learning to have a shift that locus of control to be internal, right? So if we didn't get that, if we didn't get taught that, which most of us didn't in our childhood, then that's what we're talking about now. That's what we're talking about now, currently in our adult lives, young adults to to older adults, what a lot of us are experiencing and practicing in therapy. I I think I touched on it briefly on our, our therapy episode, but it was in the form of EMDR. And there was a lot of body work included within that. And the therapist would constantly ask, you know, where do you feel that in your body? Where do you feel that in your body? And I couldn't conceptually grasp or understand what they meant by that. Again, going back to what I said on that episode, they couldn't make it make sense. Right. So even though that was the first introduction into it, I I still did not understand what the hell was going on. And it really hasn't been to the past couple years of really understanding what it means to dissociate. Because that's another thing. Uh, being self-aware that you dissociate is is a thing in of itself. Right. And I have really woken up to that over the past couple of years and to mm. know how in my head I am. My, my last therapist said, Javi, you have a lot of conversations by yourself. You come to a lot of conclusions by yourself. And uh, that really made it click for me on, and where I'm kind of at. Because any time a therapist would ask, where did my body do I feel it? I'm like, I don't feel it. I'm thinking it. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, right. I'm supposed to feel it in my wrist or something? You're not making this thing make sense for me. So there was an introduction to it that I had years ago, but I really didn't conceptually understand what it meant to be, what it means to dissociate. And then also what it means to actually feel something within your body. Until again, these past couple of years, how's you? that been? Yeah, how, how's, how's that been? I, I'm right. great. <laughs> you know, it's it's again uh, referring back to our last episode. You know, epiphanies are nice. You know, because it, it <laughs> really funny things. It, yes. it, it really simplifies things, and, and it just makes you you know clued in. And now I get it. Or when somebody says like they're dissociating in class or they're dissociating when, you know, they're driving or stuff like that. I, I really understand it more. And by understanding that I've actually developed like some tools, practices and habits of getting back within my body. Like yeah. I, I exercise a lot more now. I exercise six days a week and I always used to run and play tennis, but I go to the gym and to get back into my body. Not cause I love exercise, and that's a whole other thing because, you know, my father was a workout Nazi. So I've, I've worked out since I was a little kid. But again, that was not out of like my body needed or wanted. It was because he said that's what he wanted us to do. Yeah, I think sports is another really great example of of 
forced dissociation from our bodies. And it's like, you know, it's like this, like treating our bodies like it's a machine, right? Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to get some kind of level of performance out of it instead of movement, exercise, sports being something that is pleasurable, that makes us feel good, that helps us sleep better, helps our mental health, helps us feel strong and embodied, right? Mm -hmm. Not not with this, again, this mind over matter. Oh, it just breaks my heart to think about treating our bodies like a machine. But something you said too also made me think like, I think after a lifetime of being taught to be dissociated from our bodies, getting back into it can be really unsettling, right? For many reasons. The simplest one being like, oh, fuck, I'm a grown up and now I'm supposed to learn this new language. And it's so awkward. Like, I don't know how to speak this language. I feel dumb, right? Mm -hmm. I feel dumb and I, this is foreign and and it might be hard. And it's like, I don't want to do that. Like, I'll just keep going the way I've been going. I can't say that's been my experience because it's just been a intense amount of relief mm -hmm. from constantly being in my head. It, it's It's like releasing air from a balloon that's about to pop. Because that's constantly what it feels like when you're just perseverating and going over things endlessly in your head all the time. It's exhausting to be it's... in your head that much for me. So, yeah, I can't say I have a great literacy with or or that I'm truly embodied, uh, maybe in comparison to other people. But I'll take you know, those lumps of learning how to read. <laughs> over kind of where I was at before of that exhausting headspace of constantly just analyzing, thinking, and analyzing, and thinking, and being lost in my head. So for me, yeah, just an intense relief. But what about for you? When did you kind of get clued back into that aspect of understanding that you're dissociating and you're not necessarily in your body? Without getting too much into my experience of dissociation and versus embodiment, I do want to say that ooh, I can feel my heart beating, actually, because, okay, the lack of emotional literacy is kind of connected to the history of my drug use and that mm -hmm. drug use became a way that I managed a lot of things from a very young age. Also, the true, the real trauma of living under the tyranny of my violent parent. And that kind of trauma, like dissociation becomes necessary when you mm -hmm. have that kind of trauma. So I want to just take a moment to acknowledge that this process is tender and difficult and there, there are fucking landmines, um, depending on what your experience is. And I, and I want to, I really think that's important to say because when we're talking about all of this, like, good stuff, pleasure and embodiment and sex and stuff like there's some bullshit we have to get through to get, you know, he, you know, healing and therapy and epiphanies are all fun, but there's some parts that are grueling. They're yeah. hard. We lock it down for a reason. Yeah. We lock it down for a reason. And I think, you know, in my adulthood at some point, you know, I started hearing about this idea and I was like, Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that I need that. But I didn't know where to get it. I didn't know who to go to. I didn't have safe resources until my great therapist. And really, you know, she was great because I don't think she said, where do you feel it in your body? 
like she just sort of slowly started introducing it. And it's kind of probably the way I do it too. Thanks to her. It's like, what are you feeling in your body? We'd be talking, 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 and I'm someone who's comfortable and totally lives in my head. And I'd be, you know, probably talking a mile a minute. And she would just stop me and say, what are you feeling in your body right now? You know, it was a little bit startling, but it stopped me. And I was like, I don't know. Oh, my leg is fidgeting. Or I don't know. What are you talking about? (laughs) Or, you know, but it kept bringing me back to it. And then the more I, more she brought me back, the more I started to notice. And it was kind of sideways. It was a little subtle at first, you know? Well, it sounds like she was trying to make it make sense for you. Well, she was, whether she was trying to, you know, yeah. I think she, yeah, she came at it in a very effective and accessible way. I, I love that you brought up the point of how messy this can be because really one of my personal duties in that what I want to bring to this podcast is to give a more positive light on these really difficult things, kind of like what we talked about in our episode about therapy. It's not as if you can't have bad therapists or bad experiences with psychotropic medicine, or I've had all those things, but we do such a great job in this culture of shaming anything related to mental health that I, I want to take more of a positive perspective, but, mm-hmm. you know, as you start talking about that, you know, I can remember when I started to drink heavily in my early twenties, I think really yeah. uh, on the cusp of 19 to 20. And I knew why I was doing it in that it was providing this feeling, but I didn't have the language for it. And I still didn't conceptually understand what something like disassociating was. And that's what I was doing with drinking. Absolutely. And so you go through this, or I went through this process of, I I find, you know, this thing, alcohol that makes me feel warm inside and I feel great. But then of course, when you don't really have a language for what you're doing, that habitual process with it starts to manifest and then it becomes an addictive behavior. And that is a nasty thing into of itself. And then again, for somebody like me, I went to rehab and, you know, I tried sobriety for the first time and all of it is really framed around, well, you have this disease called alcoholism and you're powerless over it. When really what should have been being taught is you have a deep seated need to disassociate from your body and past trauma. And you're using or, this substance I, as a mechanism to dissociate. And to me, that actually, would have made a lot more sense. I would say even a, a, a better approach would be, your, or I don't know, maybe not better, but my approach would be more to be like, why, let's, let's, let's investigate why you're drinking. Let's not predetermine, you know, it's, Okay, so in the last episode, you know, when we talked about therapy, one of the clips that I really liked and shared was about moving from path- the language of pathology to the language of possibility. And one of the things that I find really a fascinating approach is to is to investigate the intelligence behind our behaviors. You were drinking for a reason. You know, and maybe it was I mean shit, you said it felt warm. We all want Mm -hmm. warmth. You know, there was something, there was a euphoria. There was a, there was a pleasurable feeling that you got from it that maybe you weren't getting anywhere else 
or you didn't know how to get anywhere else. Maybe it was a response to unresolved trauma, you know, but let's, let's find out how you were taking care of yourself in that way, first of all, and then start to, you know, it makes me think like in, in terms of thinking about embodiment, like if using drugs creates a warm feeling in a safe space, like how do we help people, how ourselves move away from this thing that works, but maybe doesn't serve us and also has harmful side effects as we know drug mm-hmm. use, you know, and start to, to shift the behavior to something that also makes you feel warm or also makes you feel, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with that. Well, I, I don't think what you're saying is incongruent with what I'm saying. I agree with you. I, I think the misstep in the treatment plan that was given to me, which is given to many people that struggle with substances, is that instead of doing the process of diagnosing, they just prescribe what it is. So now I'm this 22-year-old alcoholic with a disease <laughs> that I don't have control over. Yeah. And that didn't logically make sense to me. That didn't really add up and it felt incredibly infantilizing. And so yes. when you talk about that locus of control, what they were trying to do, and I don't mean this in a insidious way, but what they were trying to do was find some external thing where you can place that control within. Right. And that's false to me. And what yeah. I've learned with my own sobriety, which has had, a, you know, it's been a bumpy road. Um, But for the most part, I've stayed true to that road. And what I found is that uh, I I don't have a disease. I'm not powerless over this thing. And Mm -hmm. I know why I drink. I know when I drink. And I know what for, like the reasons that inhabit my drinking. And I use that substance to numb things. And I think a lot of people that use substances, it's, it's not like you... It's like, you know, that that first time that I did, you know, drug X and then I was just hooked and, you know, I'm robbing people so I can do more of it. There's always a emotional thing that underpins probably wanting to numb or feel that way. Because, again, from my experience with the drinking, like the euphoric aspect of like feeling warm it eventually goes away when you're drinking all day, every day. It's you, you don't feel bliss for 24 hours a day. So it's like, yeah. you, you start to, you start to use it to, to coddle you in, in a way. And yeah, it's or chasing that first high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it becomes very dull too. But mm-hmm. again, just going back to that locus of control, and I think with substance, again, we're, we're really incorrectly taught on why we attach ourselves to these things. Um, but just within the conversation, it just made me think about my own issues with drinking and how yeah. I was told to give control to things outside of myself. And there's also something else you said in that, which really struck me, which is to numb yourself, <laughs> which is very closely related to dissociation. Mm -hmm. Right. But if the experience of being in our bodies is intolerable or intelligible, is that the right word? Unintelligible. Then numbing it is a, is a fucking relief. So getting back to embodiment, like how do we, how do we make that shift? Right. How do we, how do we go from very reasonable practices 
to manage this unfamiliar, unnavigable territory of being in a body with all the feelings and things that we have going on. God, we really, so just as an aside again, like this is the, about, this is the pleasure ethic. This is like, this is really about healing and, and, and possibility and everything, but we got to get through some of this bullshit. We got to get through some of this dross is kind of one of the words I've been thinking about trauma and addiction. And we, we need to have an addiction episode. We need to like, just fucking go yeah. all out and talk about, cause you and I both have so much experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good times. Um, but how but do yeah, we get through that uh, bullshit is where you're at. How do we, so it's, we've gone through the history of it, how we're taught to dissociate mm-hmm. and how we're left without that literacy. And then how are we supposed to gain it back more or less? Yeah. How do we do that? And that's a huge, huge thing, but we have to wade through that bullshit as you were saying. I mean, it's funny. I think we keep coming back to, you know, I come back to trauma. You come back to the heavy drinking. Like there is a way in which I feel like we're going to have to get through some of this baggage and maybe really dedicate an episode to talking about the really, the really hard stuff. So one of the really cool things that as I've, as I've gone through this process myself, listening and translating my body to my brain has been like this really cool experience of like first starting to notice what's happening in my body. And I think there are really simple practices. I think there, there, there are two really good inroads, I think, to starting to reconnect to what's going on in our body. And that is the breath and sensation, right? And we talk a lot about breath work and breathing and stuff, but seriously, Take a breath with me right now. It is the literal inroad into our body. You know, when my child was young and had struggled with anxiety about school, I told them one time, just take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath. And even if it's just for a second, the anxiety will be gone. It might just be for for the second, this time span of a breath. But when you turn your attention to your breath, that's what you're paying attention to. And then the other thing is, and this is also really good for erotic embodiment specifically, is sensation, right? So, and you can hear it, like, I'm starting to talk about this and you can already hear it, right? How my voice has slowed down. It's, it's, it's a sort of a different mind state. It's a body state. So really simple things like, putting your hand on your legs. And if you're, you know, whether it's skin or fabric, paying attention to like, I'm wearing sweatpants right now and they're all pilled. (laughs) And I can feel that on my fingertips and my palms. So just paying attention to that. I really like paying attention to what I can hear. Like I'll close my eyes and be like, oh, there's birds, you know, and, and just bringing my attention to the senses, touch, temperature, smell, what we can hear. And it's another really interesting thing that I like to experiment with and play with is I talk about embodied mindfulness as a specific, like mindfulness is so interesting, right? Because it's like mindfulness is this practice is we breathe, we close our eyes, we try to like clear our thoughts. But I find that if we actually bring our attention to what's happening in our body, 
even if it's just returning our attention to the breath as we breathe or paying attention to the pilling fabric on my sweatpants, that quiets the mind. Shifting our attention to our physical experience of the body quiets the mind. And it's a practice. You know, very beginning practices are that. Like once a day, pay attention to one breath. When you go outside, feel what it feels like to have the wind or the sun or the rain on your skin, even if it's for 30 seconds. And one of the really cool things about coming back into the body and practicing, making this a practice, is that the theory really follows. Like it's one of those things that's like, we can talk about it all day long, but the practice makes the theory make sense. The simplicity to it, I know for somebody like me, is very encouraging. Or at least for me, at my current age, is very encouraging. But as you're going through it, and I was thinking about the simplicity of taking these steps, there's a 22-year-old version of me, and there's probably other people out there like that, who would be very much turned off by that simplicity. Because they're so disconnected, that simplistic ritual or trying to make that into a practice can seem not nonsensical, but a little silly when you're that far separated that how are you going to tell me that letting the sun hit my skin is something that's going to improve my embodiment or improve my mental health? Fuck you. I'm going to go lift weights. But it's true. You know what I would say to that 28 year old is like, then don't do it. You can try it and see what happens for you, or you can tell me to fuck off. I don't care. Don't do it. Because my 16-year-old self, my 22-year-old self, my 30-year-old self is also fuck you, lady. Yeah. <laughs> Believe yes. me. And one of the reasons, and this is a whole, this is a whole other, I mean, again, like I said, theory follows practice. One of the really anticlimactic frustrating difficult things about all of this for me has been it's fucking boring and it is so it's so anticlimactic it's like a calm nervous system is not something i was ever used to and by that by virtue of that very fact i was distrustful of it and not interested in it and i'm still not that interested in it, it i mean it's funny it's like it doesn't excite it's not exciting Sorry, everybody, it's not exciting. But I'm at a point where it's like, "Mm, but it's better. Or even better than that, I don't have to live on this adrenaline rush roller coaster anymore. I can actually tolerate calm. I can actually tolerate what I'm starting to build is is a healthy nervous system. And making the choice of like, okay, it's not that exciting. But some, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, end with a a conclusion here because honestly, I'm kind of still in the struggle with it. But I just love that you say that. I I love that, you know, your your various iterations of 22 and 30 and so on would say fuck you to you saying this now or that you can even admit that it's boring, but I guess my defense of of your great explanation is that it's 
it's not that this practice itself is so boring. Is it's just that we're just so fucking drugged up and overstimulated. Oh my god, we're so drugged up and to, overstimulated and traumatized yeah, and to where calm feels like this placid, boring thing that we don't want any part of. And it's yep. calm. <laughs> we calm is it's so restorative and and yes, and we're not yeah. used to that. We don't know how to restore. Oh, and so yeah, I think you know, we're talking about the benefit and the reasons to do all of this and they stand, you know, and we have to learn to tolerate something new, you know, like really like learning to tolerate my own well-being is a gradual process. Like I titrate good things into my life because it's so unfamiliar and I want to rebel against it so bad. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's You're nodding, a perfect yes. thing. Tolerate your well-being. Oh, I have to take care of myself because it's, it's such a great saying because, and, and going back to when you asked me about what has it been like as I've learned about how I dissociate I've now started to differentiate between self-love and things that take discipline and things that might be a bit boring and self-soothing. The things that I used to associate with, it makes me feel good or I'm treating mm -hmm. myself. And <laughs> again, because we're, we're so disconnected and we conflate self-soothing with self-love, it makes treating ourselves feel like this really hard thing to tolerate, which is sad and mind blowing, but such a comment on society on how the function of, of taking care of ourselves is a exhausting and laborious thing when it shouldn't be. Yeah. Well, you know, if we'd been taught by literate caregivers to be emotionally literate and embodied, it wouldn't be so hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's shift it. Let's change it now. So, you know, as I'm listening to you and as we're a few episodes into this project now, I, d I don't really know how to engage with our audience, but I would love to know what people want to hear about, you know, what questions people have. Like, I mean, you and I can talk forever, clearly. No, for sure. It's it's. I think also deeper than that is what we're saying making sense <laughs> is is kind of is is yeah. my kind of uh thing I think we're making sense and I think we're on track but does it does it connect to the other experiences and with other people's lit literacies for the various things that we're talking about because again depending on who you are where you come from or what your relationship to broadly speaking, this subject of mental health, this can sound like gospel or this can sound like jibber jabber. And, uh, <laughs> right? Help us out here. Okay. So for the pleasure ethic, I'm Javier Cortez. That's Elena Letourneau. Elena, as always, it's a pleasure. Always. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.